Chapter Sixteen, Part Two, of A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume Two, by John Bagnell Bury. Chapter Sixteen, Part Two. Section Three: Mausolus of Caria. Caria, like Macedonia, was peopled by a double race: the native Carians and the Greek settlers on the coast. But the native Carians were further removed than the Illyrians from the Greeks. The Illyrians spoke a tongue of the same Indo-Germanic stock as the Greeks. The Carians belonged to an older race which held the region of the Aegean before Greeks and Illyrians came. Yet the Carians were in closer touch with Greece than the Greeks of Macedonia. The Greeks of Caria were always abreast of Greek civilization, and they had assimilated and tutored the natives of the land. Tralles and Mulassa were to all appearance Greek towns. Greek was the dominant language of the country. A province of the Persian Empire Caria had yet a certain independent bond of union among her cities, in an Amphictonic league, which met in the temple of Zeus at Lagina. It was a religious union, though it might be used for purposes of common political action. But political unity was given to Caria, not by federation, but by monarchy. A citizen of Mylasa, named Hecatomnus, succeeded in establishing his rule over the whole land, soon after the death of Tisopfernes, and the great king esteemed it his most prudent policy to acknowledge the dynasty of Caria as his official satrap. Both Hecatomnus and his son Mausolus, who succeeded to his power, never failed to pay their tribute to the treasury of Susa, or to display the becoming submission to the Persian king. Only once, as we have seen, when all the western satraps rebelled, did Mausolus fall short in his loyalty. The Carian dynasts, they never assumed the royal title, thus secured for themselves a free hand. With the constitutions of the Carian cities, their sovereignty did not interfere. Thus even in their own city, Milasa, the popular assembly still passes decrees, and these decrees are ratified not by Mausolus, but by the three tribes, perhaps a sort of aristocratic council. In fact, Hecatomnus and Mausolus held in relation to the Carian states an analogous position to that which Pisistratus and his sons held in the Athenian state. They were the actual rulers, but officially they did not exist. The differences were that the Carian dynast held the official position of Persian satrap, and was tyrant, of a number of states which were independent of each other. These native satraps brought the Greek towns of the coast, Halicarnassus, Iasus, Cnidus, perhaps Miletus itself, gradually under their power, and Mausolus annexed the neighboring land of Lycia. Thus, at the time of Philip's accession to the throne of Macedonia, a rich and ambitious monarchy had arisen on the southeastern shores of the Aegean. To develop his power, 
it was desirable for Mausolus to win the lordship of the islands adjacent to his coasts, and it was clearly necessary to form a strong navy. The change of the satrap's residence from inland Milassa to Halicarnassus on the sea is thus politically significant. Caria was to become a sea power. Mausolus built himself a strong castle on the little island of Sepirion, in front of the city, and constructed two harbors, one for ships of war, the other for ships of trade. The great islands of Rhodes, Kos, and Chios, which Mausolus especially coveted, belonged to the Athenian alliance. But recently there was much discontent at the Athenian supremacy, and there were good grounds for this feeling. The reversion to the policy of Clerochis in neighboring Samos, as well as in distant Potidaea, excited apprehensions for the future, and the exactions of the rapacious and irresponsible mercenaries, whom Athens regularly employed, but did not regularly pay, caused many complaints. There were moreover strong oligarchical parties in these states, which would be glad to severe connection with Athens. The scheme of the Carian prince was first to induce these islands to detach themselves from Athens, and then to bring them under his own sway. He fanned the flame of discontent, and the three islands jointly revolted from the Athenian alliance, and were supported by Byzantium. Athens immediately sent naval forces to Chios, under Cabrias and Cares, two of the generals of the year, and the town was attacked by land and sea. But in trying to enter the harbor, Cabrias, who led the way, was assailed on all sides, and fell fighting. Thus the Athenians lost the most gallant of their soldiers, a commander of whom it was said that he never spared himself, and always spared his men. The attack on Chios was abandoned, and the Chians, much elated, and commanding a fleet of hundred ships, proceeded to aggressive warfare against the outsettlers of Athens, and located Samos. With only sixty ships, Cares could do nothing, and as many more were hastily sent under the command of Timotheus and Iphigrates. Under three such generals, much might be expected from such a fleet, but more would probably have been accomplished under any one of them alone. They relieved Samos, and made an unsuccessful diversion to the Propontes, hoping to take Byzantium. Then they sailed to Chios, and concerted a plan of attack in the strait between the island and the mainland. But the day proved stormy, and the two veteran admirals, Iphicrates and Timotheus, deemed that it would be rushed to fight. Cares, however, against their judgment, attacked the enemy, and being unsupported was repulsed with loss. The ineffectual operations of two such tried and famous generals were a cruel disappointment to the Athenians, who had given them an adequate fleet. Cares, furious at the behavior of his colleagues, formally accused them of deliberate treachery, and was supported by the orator Aristophon. The charge was that they had received bribes from the Chians and the Rhodians. Countercharges were brought against Cares by Timotheus and Iphicrates, but the sympathies of Athens were altogether given to the commander who erred on the side of boldness. Iphicrates, however, 
had less political influence, and therefore fewer enemies than Timotheus, and he knew how to conciliate the people, he was accordingly acquitted. Timotheus, always haughty and unpopular, probably assumed a posture as haughty and unbending as ever. Aristophon probably pressed him hard, and he was fined hundred talents. Rich as he was, he was unable to pay this enormous sum, and he withdrew to Calchis, where he died soon afterwards. Thus within twelve months the Athenians lost the two men, Cabrias and Timotheus, who had built up their second empire. They afterwards recognized that the measure which they had dealt out to Timotheus was hard, and they permitted his son, who had himself been tried and acquitted on the same charge, to settle the fine by a payment of ten talents. Carus now went forth as sole commander to sustain the war against the recreant allies. But he went unfurnished with money to pay his troops. He found the means of supplying this deficiency in the disturbed state of Asia Minor. The satrap of Hellespontine, Phrygia, Artabazus, had rebelled, but was not strong enough to hold his own against the king's troops. Carus came to his rescue, gained a brilliant victory over the satraps, who were arrayed against him, and received from the grateful Atrabazus money, which enabled him to pay and maintain the army. The victory and the money pleased the Athenians, but Artaxerxes was deeply incensed. The news presently reached Athens that the great king was equipping a vast armament in Syria and Cilicia to avenge the audacity of Carus. How much truth there was in this report it is impossible to say, but it evoked an outburst of patriotism and supplied the Athenian orators with material for invectives and declamations. Men began to talk in earnest of realizing the dream of Isocrates, of convoking a pan-Hellenic congress and arming Hellas against the barbarian. Demosthenes, who was now beginning to rise into public notice, delivered in these days a speech, which was more to the point than many of his later, more famous orations. He showed that the alarm was premature, and that the notion of sending round appeals to the cities of Greece was foolish. Your envoys will do nothing more than rhapsodize in their round of visits. The truth was that Athens could in no case think of embarking at this juncture in a big war, she had not the means. Isocrates himself raised his voice for peace, in a remarkable pamphlet, distinguished by the nobility of tone and the wits of view which always mark his writings. It was a scathing condemnation of imperialism. Passing from the momentary state of affairs, he looked out into the future, and boldly declared that the only salvation for Athens lay in giving up her naval empire. It is that, he said, which brought us to this pass. It is that which caused the fall of our democracy. He showed the calamities which the empires of Athens and Sparta had drawn upon themselves and Greece. But it is to be observed that, when a moment had come at which his favorite plan of a common attack on Persia seemed at length feasible, he was wise enough not to advise it. He looks to Thrace, not to Persia, to find lands for endowing those needy Greeks 
who were rowing about for subsistence. In the end prudent counsels prevailed. Caris was recalled, negotiations were opened with the revolted allies, and the peace was made. Athens recognized the independence of the three islands, Chios, Kos, and Rhodes, and of the city of Byzantium. It was not long before Lesbos also severed itself from the Athenian alliance, which thus lost all its important members in the eastern Aegean, and in the west, Corcura fell away about the same time. All happened as Mausolus foresaw. He helped the oligarchies to overthrow the popular governments, and then gave them the protection of Carian garrisons. But the prince did not live to develop his empire. Soon after the success of his policy against Athens, he died, leaving his power to his widow Artemisia. The opportunity was seized by the Democrats of Rhodes to regain their freedom, and they appealed to Athens. After what had passed, they had little right to expect a hearing, and under the influence of the wise and pacific statesmen who now controlled the assembly, their appeal was refused. In spite of the hot and somewhat sentimental pleadings of Demosthenes, who upheld the extraordinary doctrine that Athens was bound, whenever she was called upon, to intervene to support democracy against oligarchy. Artemisia soon recovered her grip on Rhodes. Caria remained for another twenty years under dynasts of the house of Hecatomnus, until it submitted to Alexander the Great. The expansion of the Carian power, which seemed probable under the active administration of Mausolus, was never fulfilled. Though we know nothing of his personal character, the outward appearance of Mausolus is familiar to us. The islanders of the north, who possess in our capital his genuine portrait, and the headless figure of his queen. The colossal statue, made at latest soon after his death, represents a man of a noble cast of face, of a type presumably Carian, certainly not Greek, and with the hair curiously brushed back from his brow. This statue stood, along with that of Artemisia, within the sepulchral tomb, which he probably began, and which she certainly completed. Such a royal tomb seems to take us back to the days of prehistoric Greece. It strikes one almost like a glorified resurrection of one of the old chamber sepulchres of the Lelegis, which are strewed about the Helicarnassian peninsula. It rose above the harbour at Helicarnassus, conspicuous from the sea, crowned with a chariot on its apex. The building was adorned with friezes, wrought by four of the most illustrious sculptors of the day, of whom Scopas himself was one. The precious fragments of these works of art are the legacy which the current realm has bequeathed to mankind, these and a new word which the tomb of Mausolus added to the vocabularies of Europe. End of chapter 16, part 2